to me, they don't. And I'm not running for anything, so I don't have the pretension like people like when I don't. Right. Well, I, I want to make it clear in our closing moments here, Christopher, I don't consider you an enemy. I don't consider you... Uh, well, I'm very sorry to hear that. Well, I know, because you want me to be your enemy. And you're a well, no, excuse me, you are my enemy. Well, but you're not my enemy. Uh, I, I, how are you going to figure that? No, because I don't feel a need to have to silence Christopher Hitchens. Well, well, you don't have a chance of doing that. I don't mean that at all, but I mean your, your, your preachments are evil and they're a direct threat to the survival of civilization. So you, if you don't consider me an enemy, you don't know an enemy when you see or hear one. It's, it's probably the stupidest thing the human race does, is to look for patterns in this way and say, when a baby falls out of a high-rise building and bounces on the grass below, that must be God. And when uh, millions of children die every day for the lack of pure drinking water and just die of diarrhea in a banal manner, that's because God moves in a mysterious way or isn't involved at all. So I think we're off to a racing start. Right, the idea of God, God speaks to some illiterate merchant warlord in Arabia, and he's able to write this down perfectly, and it contains the answers to all human don't, don't waste my time. But, but you're saying this... Christopher, I've, I've got to call you down on refer, referring to circumcision as genital mutilation. My son cried more at his first haircut than he did at his bris. Statistically, the, the only long-term effect that it seems to have on people is it increases their chances of winning a Nobel Prize. I can't, um, I can't find the, the um, compulsory uh, mutilation of the genitals of children as subject for humor in that way. I was to say to you just now, my little girl cried more at her first haircut than when I cut off her clitoris. What would you think of me if I was to say such a disgusting thing? That a person as humane as yourself can sit here and be and think of that as a fit subject for humor shows what I mean. Religion makes morally normal people say and do disgusting and wicked things. And you've just proved my point. In error to say that AIDS is bad as a disease, very bad, but not quite as bad as condoms are bad, or not as immoral in the same way. Ask yourself if you really wish it was true that there was a celestial dictatorship that watched over you from the moment you were born, actually the moment you were conceived, all through life, night and day, knew your thoughts, waking and sleeping, uh, could, could in fact convict you of thought crime, the absolute, uh, the absolute definition of a, of a dictatorship, can convict you for what you think and what you privately want, what you're talking about to yourself, that monitors you like this, under permanent surveillance control, and supervision and doesn't even let go of you when you're dead because that's when the real fun begins. <laughs> now my question is this, I, my question is this, who wishes that that were true? Who wants to lead the life of a serf in a celestial North Korea? And I suppose I should add that they don't threaten to follow you after you're dead. You can leave North Korea, you can get out of their hell and their paradise by dying. Out of the Christian and Muslim one, you cannot. I wanted to do, a, uh, do this sitting down but I it's the old demagogue in me. Um, I need the pulpit, I need the podium. And if I can't be erect, at least I can be upright. Um, by the way, do you know why the, why the Amish girl, the Amish girl, the Amish girl was excommunicated? Two Mennonite. Um, Religionists and um, evangelicals say to me, but you don't understand, we have a mission for you. You need to be saved. What shall I answer them? God, well, I mean, the second bit of the question is very easy to answer. I mean, tell the fuck off.
here. Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. Justin Pearl and I recently spoke with Ben Burgess, who is a columnist for Jacobin Magazine, an adjunct philosophy professor at Rutgers University, an online instructor at the School for Social and Cultural Change, and the host of the podcast and YouTube show Give Them an Argument. He's also an author who frequently debates conservatives and libertarians from a democratic socialist perspective. In this episode, we cover a range of things discussed in his books, especially centering on the figure of Christopher Hitchens, who, uh, if you aren't aware, was a fascinating, charming, and uh, somewhat troubling figure in, in certain ways before he died in 2011. I didn't really know of him until just a few years ago. Uh, when I stumbled onto some of his videos, his debates, and television appearances on YouTube and so on. Um, If nothing else, they're worth checking out, just for the entertainment value. But I think some of the things he was concerned with and and spoke about make an interesting point of entry for a discussion of politics and religion. And um, this isn't something that came up during the conversation, but as I was listening back, I think Hitchens' story can be seen as... an interesting case of the fidelity of betrayal. I'll just leave that there. I'll link to where you can find Ben's work in the show notes. His YouTube show is a good time. Definitely recommended viewing if you have the time for it. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. If you go there, you'll be able to leave us voice message Uh, make a recommendation, uh, tell us we suck, whatever. And we'll play that and respond to it in an upcoming episode. Some of y'all might remember the now defunct post-structuralist tent revival podcast, uh, otherwise known as PTR. They used to do this thing I thought was pretty cool where anytime anyone left a five-star review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called, they would read it on the show and... um, And oftentimes those were pretty ridiculous. I happen to be a huge fan of ridiculous and the absurd, by the way, so I think we're gonna steal that idea, see if we can make it work for us. So please leave us a five-star review and we'll read it in the next episode. All right, here is Ben Burgess, peace. Yo. Hello. Hey. How's it going, man? It, this isn't your normal, uh, where you normally set up, is it? I mean, I don't recognize. Uh, it is, but it's, uh, but I haven't been here in a little bit and mm. uh, and got some new equipment, which should be oh, really yeah. better, but I can't actually get any of it to work. <laughs> That's usually normal. <laughs> I literally just bought some new equipment that I don't trust enough to use. You've got to banish the, uh, the new gear gremlins. <laughs> yeah but appreciate you uh giving us some of your time um i check in with your show from time to time i really like the long form sort of yeah. freewheeling vibe you know but on the other hand now that i'm back to work i i don't really have time to digest you know two to three hours of content at a, <laughs> no, at a totally clip fair. so it's yeah. like a lot of times I, I i feel a little bit guilty i just like uh oh, scroll <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um 
But I, uh, do you want to say more about what you're up to with uh, Give Them an Argument, the, the premise of the show and so on? And, and you know, say something about who you are? Sure. My name is Ben Burgess. I am a adjunct philosophy professor at Morehouse College uh, here in Atlanta. And I'm a columnist for Jackman Magazine. And I have the show uh, Give Them an Argument that there's like a, a regular like, you know, podcast kind of show on Monday nights. And then on Thursday, we do these uh, Thursday night debate breakdowns or my friend Rob Larson always calls it uh, Debate Science Theater 3000. <laughs> it's a great show, by the way. Did you watch that show when it was out? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. How about the reboot? I thought the reboot was better than the original. I'm not going to actually watch the reboot. I, I think I've only ever watched the old stuff. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's really good. I thought it was funnier. Well, then again, maybe I was just you know, coming to it a uh, different place in life and appreciating yeah, right. more of the humor, you know, um, besides the sort of debate breakdowns that yeah. you do, you actually engage in debates as well. How'd you get into that? Uh, how did I get into that? I mean, I guess, um, you know, way back in uh, 2019, I started doing this weekly segment on the, uh, the Michael Brooks show called the debunk and the, very first one we did there was this uh, there's this like libertarian uh podcast part of the problem that like i don't know somehow or another came on their radar and they did this like episode that was devoted to uh you know debunking the debunk and uh and then um i watched that and then i i reached out to them. i was like hey you ever want to talk about this right you know so i, I ended up going into their studio in manhattan and uh uh, this is back when I went to New Jersey, so, you know, wasn't quite as, as big a, you know, it's not like I flew from Atlanta, you know, so mm -hmm. I just got a train, but, uh, and, you know, did this episode with the host, Dave Smith, which is now uh, mercifully paywalled uh, since, uh, since I, I actually don't think it, um, I mean, it was the first time I'd ever done anything like that, and I sort of approached it like somebody who's very used to uh, teaching classes, where you can just sort of, like, talk forever and, mm. and uh you know and, and you can kind of like play with examples to try to suggest a point or whatever and it's like in that context that's all awful that like you know that just comes off as evasive you know so um, right but uh but yeah there have been others you know more recently that i think were better than that um did uh i don't know like last fall went into uh actually did fly into uh phoenix to uh go to the uh the turning points usa building and debated charlie kirk uh which was interesting yeah i caught part of that that was interesting yeah that's uh like it's very different um you know most of the time that i'm debating people is just you know like split screens and you know youtube or whatever mm -hmm. um but this is like this little like pseudo tv studio in this building where they have like um, you know the carpets all say Turning Point USA on it, and like the the bathroom, you know, the door has like little Turning Points USA, you know, logo on it. And, uh, yeah, the toilet paper said "God Bless America." Yeah, yeah, stuff like that, <laughs> stuff like that. Could you talk a little bit about uh, before we get into the, yeah. the topic of the night? Could you talk a little bit about the book? Give them an argument, and sure. and I guess maybe the argument that you're providing in that book because I think it's mm -hmm. offering a perspective for you know people who are working on the left that i i think is novel and i think is pretty interesting right now thanks yeah so the book is kind of the beginning of everything else uh, 
you know, mentioned uh, Doug Lane earlier, who was the the editor who, who acquired that book, you know, back when he was editing uh, Zero Books. I mean, to be clear, I mean, that was originally kind of his idea. Like, I'd known Doug for a long time from other contexts. And, you know, so I was working on a different book, which was like an academic monograph that like nobody read, you know, that's, uh, you know, how an academic <laughs> monographs work, you know, but like uh, I had... Uh, but you, you can plug it if you want. Don't yeah, I mean, sure, but like, <laughs> so, so. we encourage nerddom at the highest levels. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so that one is a book called uh, "Logic Without Gaps or Gluts: uh, How to Solve Paradoxes Without Sacrificing Classical Logic." You know, when I was originally working on that book, um, you know, I think because I was talking about it a lot, right, in that sort of annoying writer on Facebook way, right? Yeah. And so uh, that gave Doug the idea to like ask if I wanted to write something for them about logic and politics. And at first I didn't quite see it, but then like I, I thought about it more and it seemed like there was actually maybe something that was that was worth saying there, right? Because um, I noticed this this kind of bad dynamic where on the one hand, there are all these people who I'd sort of see as like reactionary credence who, uh, who make a big deal about uh, taking up this like re- like rhetoric of like oh we really care about facts and logic and you know mm-hmm. and all that stuff right you know we're not woolly headed and emotional like you guys you know that uh, and so like I saw a lot of that right classic 2018 example would be like you know Ben Shapiro going out about how facts don't care about your feelings and you know stuff like that you know and, and I think there are different like sort of ways that that plays out. Uh, you know, there's a certain kind of deeply unpleasant person who really likes to like point out what they think are you know logical fallacies that you're making when uh, yep you know your argument logic bro <laughs> yeah yeah exactly right uh, so, so sorry just to be yeah, just, just to clear the air here you are not a logic bro <laughs> well, is that uh, if so I mean maybe a better kind I hope uh, but, uh... <laughs> I like it that's the title of your next book. <laughs> yeah, a better man. logic bro. <laughs> yeah, exactly right sorry continue no but i mean that's that's it right i mean like i i, I wrote the book because I, I want to make better i want to make better logic bros less annoying mm. ones uh so um so Fair. yeah like i saw those people right and then on the other end i saw some people who you know i, I think share my political goals and you know yeah. sensibilities about the world who I I'd see as overreacting to the first group by saying like, oh, um, this is all just kind of annoying nonsense, mm-hmm. right? Like, like, like we, you know, this is nothing that you need to, uh, to, to worry about. It has sort of having a bad reaction, even to kind of the language, you know, like sort of logical terminology, certainly anybody talking about a fallacy. And, and I think related to that, there are all these sorts of, um, kinds of anti-debate views that you uh, that mm-hmm. you see on the left and you know you still do uh now that it's like a, a waste of time that like what you think you know you think you're gonna like you know win political power by like winning debates or something uh yeah. all of this stuff so i i, I kind of wanted to address both of those things so what the book tries to do is is a couple things at the same time right because it's 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 kind of a polemic but it's also um, tries to actually function as something like, you know, a rudimentary kind of informal logic textbook that is, you know, is geared towards people who, as the title suggests, you know, come from the left, like, you know, like, like, like share some of his goals, et cetera, but, um, but who might not be convinced 
of the sort of utility of any of this stuff that like um mm-hmm. why you know why do i care about learning logic is this is this just this kind of like annoying affectation right is this something as a uh a uh, young woman I quoted in the first page said that, you know, like, like how God studied this stuff turns you into an annoying libertarian boy, right? You know, the, uh, like, is this, uh, <laughs> is, is this all kind of a waste? And, and on a more fundamental level, is there a point to like sort of getting the arguments right, right? I mean, is that something that you should worry about? Uh, is there a political utility to that? You know, then the, so the book tries to argue, yeah, there is. And then to sort of help people to learn some of those tools by sort of using them against people in the first group. Mm-hmm. The point about utility is a good one to center on. I, th- I think it's obvious to a lot of people that no matter where you are politically, that uh, like returning to some golden age of civil discourse, if there if there ever was yeah, such right. a thing, is like you know pretty much a delusion. I think that ship has sailed. <laughs> that yeah, ship sure. has sailed. I've had enough fallacy cards pulled on me, and I, and, I, and I really can't tell if it's done in, in good faith or bad at, uh, at sure. this point, and, and I don't fucking care. And also, like, when was this this golden age, right? Like, like, right, exactly. But yeah, so this idea of having like measured, reasonable discourse with, you know, Charlie Kirk or your racist uncle or whoever, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And that the the formality of uh, yeah. debate, of public sure. debate, is like maybe yeah. like one of the last places we have left where something like conversation can sure. happen, where like where people's ideas might be considered. I'm not completely convinced of that. Yeah, I mean, so, so the way so the way I I would think about this would just be I think a mistake that people often make when they're making these arguments against making arguments is that they'll <laughs> uh, they'll say that well um, nobody's ever nobody's ever convinced right you know that that, that it, it doesn't do any good on that level right and I mean whatever like obviously there's a sense in which that's obviously ridiculous right people are convinced by arguments all the time everybody who says that has in the past been convinced of tons of things, right? You know, that they didn't used to believe, right? I mean, like, and the sort of dumb joke I was making about this is like, look, you know, half the time that like, I hear people say things like this and I actually know them. It's like, okay, dude, right? You know, I, I, I know you, like you, you grew up in a conservative evangelical household. You became like an atheist when you were 16 because you were watching, you know, Richard Dawkins videos on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you were just like a regular MSNBC liberal until 2016. And, you know, then you became Bernie Guy, joined the DSA, and now you're like halfway to Maoism. You're going to tell me that nobody changes their mind, right? You know, like, they could, <laughs> you know, clearly people change their minds, but I know what people mean when they say that, right? That like certainly what legitimately is extremely rare is like changing your mind like in the room while you're arguing about something right like yeah. that, that's that's i think psychologically just hugely difficult there's too much ego involved right i mean like and that's even if it's just like just regular people right talking uh and certainly you know if it's like yeah charlie kirk or somebody right i mean it's like your whole uh, you're deeply invested in what you think right that you know you've got this whole sort of personal and political and professional identity that's sort of wrapped up in your views and so even at that level, people do sometimes fundamentally change their minds, but it doesn't happen casually, right? I mean, it's a, that's, mm-hmm. that's like having a religious conversion or something, right? So, so I think that's all true. But I think the mistake that people make is going from, well, it's extremely unlikely that you're going to convince the guy at the other podium, right, mm-hmm. at the public debate. Therefore, there's no point to doing stuff like that. Or people spend a lot of time talking about, you know, what is or isn't, you know, a good faith actor or things like that. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that that all kind of misses the point to some extent, because 
the purpose of a debate is almost never to convince the other guy on the stage or the guy in the other half of the YouTube split screen, right? I mean, the, the, the point is always to talk to whoever is persuadable who's watching it. Right. right, you know that the and you know in any audience that's bigger than like a couple dozen people, you know there are always different layers, right? I mean there are people who are like super duper hardcore fans of the person you're talking to, and you sure you're not going to convince them, right? You know, but there then there are people who are just sort of casually curious. There are people who are somewhat sympathetic to what the person you're talking to are saying, but they're not like really locked into it yet. There are people who maybe used to be totally locked into it, but you just happen to catch yeah. them at the right point in the arc, you know. And I and I think anybody who does this regularly will have heard from people who um, who did change their mind at least partially as a result of of watching you have these conversations. And you know, and I, it's really hard to know what the numbers are, of course, but I would just say, okay. If the question is, is doing debates with like conservatives or libertarians, is that like a more valuable activity than like sending people in as like salts to like organizing union at Amazon? Well, no, I don't think it is, right? You know, but if the point of comparison is shit posting on Twitter, shit posting on Twitter, <laughs> or, um, you know, I say this with love, this is something we all do, you know, podcasting, right? You know, <laughs> then, uh, like, you know, it, it's it's less obvious to me, right? You know, that it, it you know. No, that's fair. I, I was actually going to ask you about that because uh, I've heard this too, right? And what you're sort of getting at is there's a sort of anecdotal quality to it. And not to make too much of the sure. of the analogy, but I come out of Christian background and people who do, who engage in sort of um, street preaching and stuff like that, they'll be like, if I save one person, it's all worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, I'm getting a little bit like a, that kind of vibe yeah, I mean, sort of thing. I, I mean, I do want to convince people, obviously. I mean, like, that's the point of of, um, sure. of doing any of it. I, I don't just mean debates. I mean, like, writing, you know. No, totally. I mean, so, so to that to that point, can you say something about an, an instance or two, sure. or something that, like, stands out to you where where that's happened to you? Like, you've changed somebody's mind. Uh, a kind of dramatic one that comes to mind is I did this debate with Gene Epstein, uh, who is this uh, libertarian economic analyst in the, at the Soho Forum. It was like when they were doing it in Florida. And there's this this dude who came up to me afterward who uh, who told me that when he'd started reading my stuff in Jacobin, you know, he was a libertarian and he was kind of hate reading it, right? You know, that was like, uh, you know, like people do, right? And, uh, and in his mind, right, I mean, this was a big part of what, what shifted him away from that. And, uh, what he gave credit to for that. And like at that point, this guy, like at the point that I was talking to this guy in 2020, he was like the vice chair of, of Orlando uh, DSA, you know, Democratic Socialists of America. So, you know, that's like a pretty stark example. Uh, I remember last year, you know, I was like walking around. I was actually back in Michigan. I was in Meyer, which for anybody who's spending time in the upper Midwest is this like big uh, grocery store chain. Where, you know, it's like sort of Walmart with better lighting, basically. Uh, and, uh, and I was just like walking around, like grabbing, you know, like grabbing some groceries. And there's this dude who came up to me and told me that watching me do this stuff played a big role in like sort of bringing him to the left. And uh, although he did make a point of saying that now he was to the, the left of me and, you know, <laughs> you know like, of course. I, I don't know, you know, whatever. Uh, but so that's, uh, I guess that one's a little ambiguous, you know. Uh, my favorite is that there was a, uh, just because just it was a, um, you know, just because it's like a little unexpected given the combination of venue and person is there's a 
one of the uh, elderly women that my mother goes birding with told her that, uh, you know, she, she said she was a socialist now. And, uh, and she said that was because it's like I watched your son on uh, Joe Rogan. So that's, you know. that's heartwarming. Yeah. And, and you, that, did, that you say, is, did you say that, birding? Yeah. Bird, yeah. Okay. Bird, okay. Bird watching, you know, so, yeah. Yeah. It's just making sure. Yeah. So this, the general thrust of what we're talking about here in terms of uh, changing one's mind makes me think of uh, what we originally talked, yeah. um, we're here to talk about, which is uh, Christopher Hitchens, mm-hmm. who I think a lot of people know, but if they do know him, they probably know him from the YouTube debates on a number of topics, mainly politics and religion. And you wrote a mm-hmm. book about Hitchens. So for anyone who isn't familiar with him, what do you think they should know? And, and um, I guess as a, as a second part of that, what was your introduction to his mm-hmm. work? How'd you become interested in him? Yeah. Well, to start with the second the last part, right? My mm-hmm. my introduction to Christopher Hitchens uh, was reading him in the Nation magazine when I was a teenager. Uh, that um, there was sort of uh, Christopher Hitchens and Alexander Coburn uh, both had uh, had columns. I think they were like on alternate uh, alternate issues. Minority Report for Hitchens and Beat the Devil for Coburn, and, and they they were frenemies uh, politically. You know, they'd, they'd agree on some things, disagree about others, and, and that was sort of uh, significant for me back when I was reading that stuff. Even then, I think I was a bit more you were know, on on Team Coburn in terms of the the sorts of things they would disagree about. This is all seriously pre nine eleven, you know, but um, yeah, but you know the seeds were there. I think already. But I think the biggest thing I connected to Hitchens about back then is just he's such a fucking good writer. It's like, it's just a pleasure to read. And then like, he kind of probably fell off my radar for a while, you know, when I was, I was um, college and all that, you know, and then he, he came back onto it. He was like really on, on a lot of people's radar, right? When he was on the most rated people's radar, right? which is the, uh, the sort of mid to late 2000s. So if, anybody's listening to this who's only sort of vaguely familiar with him they're almost certainly vaguely familiar with him from this period because um, this is when he made his biggest splash and so what they really know him as well two to three things so they know him as this flashy british writer commentator who primary data points they probably have on him are atheism that right? spends a lot of time in the last years uh you know doing debates with, you know, with, with pastors and priests about the uh, existence of God uh, and related subjects, uh, religion and morality, etc. Uh, so there's atheism and there are these, to simplify a little bit, then we can go back and complicate it later, uh, neoconservative foreign policy positions, most obviously support for the war in Iraq. And then if there's like a third thing, it's, it's that um, he's just kind of a fun, like iconic drinker. Right. I mean, this is the, you know, like, your, your, your book cover literally has him sitting in front of a glass of like whiskey. It looks like. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's uh, actually, yeah. So J. Andrew world who, uh, who did that, uh, drew that cover. He, um, what he, he drew there is, is very clearly, uh, at least if you've seen enough bottles of this very clearly a, uh, a bottle of uh, Johnny Walker black, which is what, what religions yeah. like to drink. There's this little clip you can still probably pretty easily find on YouTube where he's, it seems to be at the end of some lecture or something, and uh, and they've and there's like a moderator who's collected questions from the audience, and he's like asking him on like cards, and he's like, oh, there seem to be quite a few personal questions. Uh, somebody wanted to know uh, what you'd take to like a desert island, and somebody else wanted to know what your favorite kind of whiskey was. And Hitchens, huh? Seems to me those are the same questions. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is Johnny Walker Black, <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know starts joking about it but yeah 
that's funny. I, I enjoy whiskey. It wouldn't be my first choice, but you know, <laughs> teach his own. I, and it didn't seem to uh, dull his wits at all. Just from what I've uh, observed of him, he's very sharp. And the word witty is something I, I don't like the word. It just doesn't sound good to my ear. I reserve it for when it actually really fits, but he was a witty motherfucker. No, definitely. Uh, and, uh, and rhetorically and charming in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first part, I always think of this appearance in this era that we're talking about, uh, where he's uh, he's on Hannity and Combs on Fox News to uh, to talk about the late uh, Jerry Falwell. This is right after Falwell died and uh, and, and his, his classic summation of Falwell. And I was so pissed off that like I couldn't come up with a way to work this into the book that felt natural, right? So I, I had to, I, I couldn't quote it there. But his, his summation of Falwell was uh, that he was so full of shit that if they gave him an enema, they could have buried him in a matchbox. I think it's funny. <laughs> this is, is this even a coherent idea? Yeah, it is. But um, it, I just think it's interesting. He's so well known for not just his writing, but his, his debating, I think is what launched him into the public imagination. And I'm curious about that connection for, for you personally. Do, do, you, uh, do you feel you'd be as interested in debates and debating if it weren't for him? No, probably not. Yeah, I mean, when he um, really came back onto my radar during the New Atheism period, I mean, this this is what, you know, I, I remember watching like 2010 or something, this debate that he did with his uh, his brother, Peter Hitchens, who uh, is the exact opposite of, uh, of all of his positions. Uh, and, um, you know, Christopher Hitchens is somebody who we didn't really say earlier uh, is somebody who who comes out of the left uh who was uh who was like a, a pretty radical socialist in the 70s and up through the 80s and 90s was somebody who was you know very firmly on the left and in some ways uh still to the bitter end but in some ways very much not as we've already said i mean he supported the war in iraq and obviously he was an atheist in fact i i I talked to Peter and he told me that he thought that was Christopher's most consistently held position throughout his life. He estimated from the age of about 11. Uh, but uh, And this is what I think is, is quite interesting, right? Yeah. Is because So when you yeah, described yeah. the way that most people who kind of know Christopher Hitchens yeah, yeah. know him, that was like textbook me. That was my introduction to him. You know, I, yep. I first discovered him in probably 2006, 2007. You know, he was one of the, whatever they call them, the four horsemen of new atheism or whatever yep. um, stupid name they had for him. And then there was the Iraq war stuff. And so for me, this all sort of linked together, right? He's a new atheist. And then the new, and new atheism was always sort of vaguely Islamophobic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got this kind of neoconservative Iraq thing happening at the same time. And I was like, oh, that all makes sense. And then I learned after that in like the eighties, he was like a staunch Marxist. And I was like, what is happening? And so I'd be really interested if you could talk a little bit more about what did that earlier political moment look like for him before he had sort of his, his maybe right wing turn, though it sounds like you want to complicate that a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, I mean, it's obviously, you know, very obvious that on some super important positions, he did turn to the right. I mean, like, I actually don't think any political positions you can take on anything are, are going to be much worse than supporting the war in Iraq, right? I mean, that's that's uh, that's like, as black marks go on somebody's record, I mean, it doesn't get like it doesn't get much blacker than that, right? But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think there's maybe a way to like answer both that and, and go back to the previous question at the same time, you know, because Matthew is is absolutely right. I mean, like I, I it's both true. I think that part of why I'm interested in Hitchens is because, you know, I'm obviously somebody who is interested in debates and is interested in doing them and all of that stuff. And I th- think that he's, um, 
probably the single individual who is the best at it, like in, you know, really maybe the whole era in which they've been captured on YouTube, right? I mean, like that's, if that's an exaggeration, it's not much more. And also the other half is true. And what Matthew said earlier, that like, that like probably my having followed some of his stuff contributed to, to my being interested in debates, right? So I think both of those are true. Uh, so as far as the, you know, as, as what you're asking about, right, about the, um, you know, the turn to the right and sort of his earlier political evolution and everything. One of the things I do in the book is, is you know, I've got a long chapter where I trace that evolution by looking at a bunch of those debates that you can find captured on YouTube, mm-hmm. going back to these debates in the, uh, in the 1980s, where, yeah, as you say, I mean, you know, he's a, he's a Marxist, you know, and then he, he talks about Marxist stuff, right, in the, uh, in the debates. And I think you point out, importantly, the Trotskyist, yeah? Yeah, exactly, right? So Hitchens, back in the 60s, right, you know, he comes from this, I think it'd be fair to say, like, upwardly mobile kind of middle-class background. His father is a naval officer. You know, this is the era when, you know, there, there's, you, know you don't do the other half. His mother was, uh, right, you know, you know, she wouldn't work outside of the home. So, uh, but, uh, but in any case, uh, but there's a conversation between the two of them that he mentions in his memoir, H22, where he remembers his, his mother having the line, you know, at least as he re- recollects it, right, you know, that like they're arguing about whether they could afford to send him to boarding school. Uh, he remembers his, his mom saying, uh, well, if this country is going to have a ruling class, I want Christopher to be part of it. So he's he's sent to Schmancy, you know, boarding school and then goes to Oxford while there. I mean, I think just before he actually officially starts as, as a student, you know, he's already pretty left wing. He's a member of the like youth, whatever, of the Labour Party, uh, the traditional social democratic party in the UK. And uh, he's, he's definitely on the left wing of the Labour Party. He like goes to anti-Vietnam War protests. But then at, at Oxford, he's recruited into a group called the International Socialists, which is, you know, well to the left of that. It's a Trotsky's group. You know, I, I sort of do this thing in the book where I so I sort of try to like very quickly go through the whole factional history of socialism leading up to this point. But I think the the sort of big bullet point about Trotskyists for people who aren't, you know, who for whom that word might necessarily not necessarily mean that much to them. Leon Trotsky was one of the main leaders of the Russian Revolution, and he lost a faction fight in the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in the 20s. And so his his followers are people who are like revolutionary Marxists who are not fans of the the Soviet model. That's, I think, a good, like, very short summary that's still pretty accurate of what that's all about. And in particular, the kind of Trotskyist he was, right? So um, the International Socialist, this group, which still exists in a different form, they renamed themselves sometime in the 70s or 80s, the uh, Socialist Workers' Party, which, again, this is the British Socialist Workers' Party, which is actually a totally different animal from the American organization of the same name. But uh, this is a group that was founded by this guy, Tony, uh, Tony Cliff, who um, is a really interesting guy. We don't have to talk about him. But he actually went even further in his sort of critique of the Soviet model than, than Trotsky himself did and said this is actually the sort of weird mutant form of capitalism where like the state plays the role that would be played by private capitalists, but like the working class is exploited in the same way. And so the slogan of this group, the International Socialists, is uh, neither Washington nor Moscow, but International Socialists. Uh, they're like third positionists about the Cold War. You know? So like applying this to young Christopher Hitchens, he is at Oxford. He's going to anti-Vietnam war protests at like the American uh, embassy all the time. But also 
during 1968, when the Prague Sprint is going on, Czechoslovakia, uh, Christopher is at this like internationalist youth conference in uh, Cuba, and he, he like takes the opportunity to, to distribute some Spanish Spanish language leaflets from his group uh, denouncing the Russian invasion of, uh, of Czechoslovakia. Although the funny part here is, is apparently lots of people in Cuba assume that he was Russian just because he's like a, you know, like he has a European kind of look to him. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, those are the people, those are the Europeans, I guess, most likely to, uh, you know, to be in Cuba at that time. Uh, and, and so like he, he got some like sort of casual hate, you know, because of that. But, uh, uh, but yeah, so this is their position. And if you watch these debates in the 80s, uh, like there's one that Hitchens and John Judas do with a couple guys from the Ayn Rand Institute. Um, you know, he's no longer a member of this group or anything. I mean, like sometime in the mid seventies, I mean, there are sort of stupid internal faction fight reasons because there's, there's this is the far left and so there always are, right? You know, but like, I think the, the bigger thing with him leaving uh, as he sort of later acknowledged, right? I mean, the sort of probably what was really motivating him is like, well, by 1975, it becomes clear that the world revolution isn't happening anytime soon. And it gets a little bit harder to want to spend hours and hours and hours a week at meetings, you know, working out the exact party line and, you know, all this stuff, right? So he rejoins the Labour Party and, and he goes into journalism, right? First in the New Statesman in the UK and then uh, the Nation magazine in the US. Originally, he's in the US because uh, the Nation and the New Statesman have this like exchange program. You know, somebody from the nation went over and spent a year in the UK and Hitchens uh, did the same thing at the nation. And then he decided he wanted to stay. Right. You know, he liked uh, living in the US and felt a little bit closer to, uh, to where the action was. And, you know, the nation offered him a permanent job. And so he's he's doing this like weird thing, I think, for a lot of this time where he's like in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, he's some kind of at least vague socialist whose stated opinions aren't really that different from what they were when he was like a 1970s, you know, young Trotskyist, you know, at Oxford, he still retained a lot of those views. But he's not like, like, okay, so like The Nation is a left-wing magazine, but it's not like uh, The Nation, especially in the 1980s, that's not like Jacobin now. That's not a sort of place where everybody's like a socialist or anything close to it. It's no worker's world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's not like he's writing for, for worker's world. Exactly, right? So, uh, and so I think this is always maybe one of the things that was really interesting about 80s and 90s Hitchens, that he was sort of pitching what he was writing to subjects, people who might read The Nation or, or Vanity Fair, where he, you know, he was also writing for much of this period would read it and he could go on C-SPAN and talk to Brian Lamb about it. And uh, in certain respects, it's like swimming in very mainstream waters, but he's still, he's still saying all of the pretty radical socialist stuff that he, uh, he always had been, right? I mean, this one, you know, one of the debates I covered is from 1997. It's uh, Hitchens and Jesse Jackson debating a couple of guys for the National Review on the death penalty, moderated by Ed Koch for some reason. It's the weirdest thing. But uh, <laughs> in... Uh, but like in that debate, he sort of casually says like the goal of my politics is a class is a classless society. And like maybe because he's such a good writer, maybe because he's just a very charismatic person, maybe because some of what he's writing are just like very, very like carefully calculated interventions of the kind that are going to get people interested, right? But for all these reasons, 
he is swimming in relatively mainstream waters. And, and that makes like the fact that he still has this politics, like kind of jarring if you watch some of that stuff, right? I mean, I remember this old C, you know, C-SPAN clip probably from like the early 90s or something. Like we watched on the Michael Brooks show once where there's this like old lady who calls in and she's like, I don't like this Christopher Hitchens. You know, he's, he's, he's too much of a liberal. And it's just like, ah, oh, madame, you have wounded me more than you could know. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, the interesting question here, and the question like a bunch of the book is taken up with is like, okay, so given that, what happened, right? You know, like, like, like how is it that in the, in the 2000s, even if, you know, like you said earlier, we do want to complicate it a little bit, right? Like he, he is, I mean, he's, he's clearly taken some kind of swing to the right relative to where he was at. I'm curious about that because 9-11 was my sort of political awakening. So going back years later and, and mapping this Hitchens progression onto, onto that scene has a, has a sort of personal resonance. When he was defending it against his brother, he almost had me convinced a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. I was like, you know, maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe, maybe this, totally, is a, this yeah. was a good idea. Maybe I need to reevaluate like everything. It also doesn't hurt that his brother is not a good debater and a terrible person. I, I think he. I think he did okay. I think he did okay. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's so. I mean, look. I. I. Uh, I was able to speak to to his brother once. Uh, I mean, he's very entertaining. He's. I. I don't know that I'd say a terrible person. He's, he, I think he's kind of crazy. I think that's the thing that's true. But they have a. Yeah. Like I said earlier, the thing that's like kind of hilarious about them being brothers is that ideologically, like it's just like this sort of exact mirror image, right? This, there's this, this, so like Christopher mm-hmm. is this lifelong atheist for whom atheism becomes much more important in the final decade, who comes out of the radical left and still has sort of an ambiguous relationship to some leftist ideas at the same time as advocating yeah. these like kind of neoconish uh, foreign policy views. And Peter Hitchens is a devout Christian who is also a super duper hardcore conservative, but was opposed to the war in Iraq for like right-wing isolationist reasons. And it's like, could not be, uh, you know, they, yeah. they could not be more different. Like this is something like out of like a fairy tale or something that these, these guys, uh, these guys are, are brothers, you know? And, and I think that, um, I mean, I do think Christopher is like clearly a much better debater than, than, than Peter. Although I will say, uh, having gone back and rewatched that debate pretty recently, I mean, it's really weird, like whiplash for me watching it because what they actually did is they they spent like they did these like half hour each kind of debates in the same evening about Iraq and and God and you know like I kind of get vertigo from how quickly my sympathies you know switch you know between yeah. uh, you know between those two but like in the Iraq parts even though all of Christopher's you know rhetorical skills are are on display and I totally get what you're saying about how he could like make it sound the most that anybody could like oh, maybe right am i missing something right you know they, like but like i have to say re-watching it when peter is is describing his kind of reaction to to hearing the war propaganda to you know people being enthusiastic about you know we're gonna we're gonna go you know we're gonna go light them up you know mm-hmm. and like i have to say it did it, that did connect with me like re-watching it that it's like wow you know i mean he's starting from like his view of the world is just like radically alien to me but starting from his weird conservative premises like he has worked his way around to having this like very appropriate human reaction to uh, the war in iraq so uh 
what what is it right we've kind of danced around it a sure. little bit like there's the big switch like you know did 9-11 break his brain or was he spending too much time hanging out with with neocons and his job was it an economic sure. like what what do you attribute the shift to yeah uh what i attribute the shift to is basically two things uh, that are related to each other and uh, it's not really any of those. I mean, I think 9-11 maybe, um, I, I guess if I was going to be like super polemical about this, I'd say that like in, term, you know, in terms of like whatever was right about his foreign policy sensibilities, 9-11 certainly broke whatever was, was left, right? You know? uh, but, but I do also think if you read his stuff in the 90s, um, it was a long time coming. A lot of people whose impression of Hitchens is based on like the greatest hits. Uh, it's like, okay, there's like, you know, goes after Mother Teresa, whatever, you know, is the, like, you know, Henry Kissinger, that's like, oh, what, what, what happened here, right? It's like, it, it really looks like this, like, dramatic overnight uh, conversion, right? Where, but I think if, if you look at more of his body of work over that time, I think that, I think it was actually a much slower evolution than that, and then maybe, like, 9-11 was the last little jolt, you know, but, like, in some ways, there's a lot of continuity between some things he was saying in the 90s, there was that. Now, I realize I haven't answered your question, so let me just do that real quick. Uh, so we can talk about that. So uh, the two things that I would attribute it to, I think in different ways are both a result of the end of the Cold War. And I think there's like a foreign policy strand to this and a more general kind of ideological worldview strand to it, right? So the foreign policy strand is that if you think about 80s hitches, right? Like what is he really hot bothered about? The Reagan administration, I mean, like, right-wing death squads in, in Central America. It's uh, Henry Kissinger doing all the things that you know, he does around the world, right? I mean, that, that's the stuff that Hitchens is like sort of most passionate about, about writing about. But then I think in the, the sort of way that the end of the Cold War sort of scrambles the, the global order, right? I mean, that um, I think he, he looks out of the world in the 90s that looks very, very different. And one reason, by the way, that I don't really buy the idea that you know Islamophobia was the sort of main cause of this shift, right? Which is not to say that I don't think there was any Islamophobia in the mix. I think that uh, certainly Hitchens's reaction to um, to 9/11 and a lot of the rhetoric he used about that certainly blew up whatever realistic level of threat that like Al Qaeda style terrorism could pose to Western societies to like a totally absurd degree. Granted, not a unique Hitchens problem. Right, you know, a pretty widespread uh, post nine eleven problem. But like, all I'm saying is, if you want to call that Islamophobia, I'm not going to fight you on it. It's certainly bad, whatever it is. But but I was just going to say, the reason I don't buy Islamophobia as the primary driver of this is that the first war where he warms up to, you know, the idea that the United States can really be a force for good in the world, is not a war where the United States is bombing Muslims. It's actually uh, the war in Bosnia where the United States is intervening on behalf of Bosnian Muslims against Serbian Christians. So uh, that alone tells me that like Islamophobia can't really be the main thing, right? So what is the main thing? I think that on the foreign policy strand, I think as Hitchens looks at first Bosnia and then Kosovo and then the post 9-11 wars in the Middle East, I think that he, he sees the United States fighting against very different enemies than it had in the 60s or 70s or 80s. You know, if George W. Bush had been waging wars against like peasant communist revolutionaries like LBJ was in Vietnam or, or like uh, Reagan was in Nicaragua, right? You know, uh, 
I don't think that Hitchens could have ever brought himself to support that, right? But like, I think that the kinds of enemies we're talking about, the 90s and 2000s, like Slobodan Milosevic you know, in his regime in Serbia, it's Al-Qaeda, it's the Taliban, it's Saddam Hussein. And all of these look a lot less like the kinds of forces that the United States was targeting in the 70s and 80s, and much more like the kinds of forces the United States was propping up in the 70s and 80s, right? I mean, like, like these are, all of those groups that I just mentioned bear far more similarity to like the Contras than to like the Sandinistas, right? You know? yeah. uh, so I, th- I think that's one strand. And then I think the other strand is just that like in that sort of post-Cold War end of history era in the 90s, I think even though he sort of nominally keeps the faith right up until uh, 2001, like it's actually, he writes a book called Letters to Young Contrarian that uh, it's pre 9-11. I think it actually came out like just post 9-11, but like given how long publishing takes like the latest he could have written it was very early 2001 right probably before that in there he sort of um he kind of officially gives up on thinking that like uh, socialism is ever really going to happen right he's he sort of his line is like look it'd be great if it did on a values level would be like desirable if it happened at this stage in history that that ship is sailed it's just it's just done right you know i yeah. think that even though Hitchens as a young Trotskyist, right? I mean, they were, you know, third positionists on the Cold War, neither Washington nor Moscow, but international socialism. I think even despite that, as long as the Cold War is going on, there's this sense that these like big questions about how you organize a society are kind of on the table politically. And like, Mm. those are like matters of like sort of live contestation. Whereas like in the nineties, there is this incredibly pervasive sense that all of that's over now. And some yeah. sort of liberal capitalism won, and now we just sort of have to work out the details. And yeah, there are people who you know weren't assimilated into the Borg at that time period, right? I mean, there are your Noam Chomsky's and Norman Finkelstein's and whoever, right? But like, but like, this is maybe where you know. I mean, I guess the question earlier kind of hit it. None of those guys were like hanging out on Brian Lamb on C-SPAN and going to Washington cocktail parties. It's like I think swimming in much more mainstream waters. Again, this is not like a sort of like cheap, like, oh, he sold out narrative. I just think that those assumptions were sort of everywhere. Yeah. And yeah. At, a, at a certain point, it became very difficult not to accept them. So I just think putting those two together, I think ultimately, if you think socialism is sort of off the table historically, think about like all of these countries that Hitchens is this like globe trotting journalist to like spend all this time in. And he, he got him to know people. A big part of the evolution on Iraq was that he could oppose the first Gulf War, right? You know, he'd spent all this time in, uh, in the Kurdish enclave in northern Iraq, right, in the 90s, right? There are people he knows and he cares about who are suffering under these regimes. And presumably 70s Hitchens thought that, like, some future wave of, like, socialist revolutions would, like, sweep all those away. And yeah. it's like, well, on some level, if you don't, if you don't think that's going to happen anymore, then, you know, yeah. there's always the 82nd Airborne. <laughs> right. And it's it's sort of like the, I don't know if this is a thing, but like the Fukuyama effect, yeah, right? Totally. <laughs> it's just like, this is what we're left with. And so I could see how someone who uh, still wants to adhere to his underlying uh, ethics and sense of morality and so on and, po- mm-hmm. and politics. And this is why I say it's perhaps a, a matter of mm-hmm. uh, a shift in strategy than it is an ideology. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I wonder, thinking about Fukuyama, so I was actually going to bring up Fukuyama as well. It makes me wonder about if we imagine a world in which Christopher Hitchens doesn't end up with cancer. Um, I wonder if you could speculate on where we might find him in our current political climate, right? Because I'm, I'm thinking of 
the way you described it, it had sort of Fukuyama kind of resonances. And what we've seen with him has been a shift from sort of a neoconservatism more towards like a neoliberalism. And, I, and I'm curious, what would what would Hitchens do in the face of like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump? So I, I'd just be curious if you have any thoughts or insights on what the future development of his thought might have looked like and what, what directions he might have gone. Uh, yeah, I've actually spent way too much time thinking about this. Uh, I think there's a range of possibilities, some of which I would like a lot more than others, right? Um, you know, so the way the book starts is imagining Hitchens beating cancer in uh, 2011, and rather than starting in like 2022, like it's like, okay, now we're talking about 11 years of ways the world has changed, making this harder to figure it out, right? Like, let's start halfway in between, right? Let's put them in 2016. What does he, uh, you know, what does he think then? I think there's a range of imaginable possibilities. I think at the worst end of that range, you sort of think, okay, well, you take all of his worst foreign policy positions and assume that he sticks with all of them. You assume that like whatever sort of residual socialist kind of worldview is there has like faded a lot, right? Whatever. Even in that worst end of the spectrum, the one thing I don't think is a possibility is I don't think that there's any scenario that he would like support uh, Trump or, you know, you mentioned Boris Johnson. I don't think there's any scenario where he supports Brexit. I, I don't think that's on the table, right? I think even the worst version of him would have hated all of that. I mean, on Brexit, uh, before the uh, Christopher and Peter debate that we were talking about earlier, there was uh, there was one that the two of them did, um, like, say, like 99 or something, um, where... Um, that was about Britain's relationship to the European Union and Peter's essentially what we would have later called pro-Brexit, although because he's such a delightful crank, he didn't vote in the Brexit referendum because it's like, a, I didn't really like the campaign that was being run, so, you know, pox on both their houses, you know, uh, but, uh, but I mean, I, I think that, you know, certainly if you go back and look at Christopher's comments on, uh, on Donald Trump, you know, there aren't very many of them, but I mean, like in 2000, when Trump was sort of a candidate for the Reform Party nomination, which is weird to think about, right? This guy became president, was this also ran for this uh, third party nomination in 2000. Um, uh, he uh, lost to uh, Pat Buchanan. But uh, in his column about that race for the nation, uh, Hitchens refers to Trump as a nutball narcissistic tycoon. Uh, there's also one of the C SPAN appearances, uh, Brian Lamb asks him about Trump. And he says, as far as I can tell, the only impressive thing about that man is that he's found a way to cover uh, 90% of his skull with 10% of his hair. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, he disliked him, but like, in a way, I think the personal dislike would actually be the least of it, right? I mean, that is like, I think that it's also, you know, that kind of racist, nativist worldview is, is the thing that he, he liked the least, even the worst version of him. And even if you think about like, Hitchens' worst foreign policy positions. I mean, Trump in 2016 was at least pretending to be something like a right-wing isolationist, right? You know, he kept, you know, he was using this like America first slogans and stuff like that. That's not really how he governed, but like in the, mm -hmm. uh, obviously Hitchens would have hated all that shit, right? I mean, bringing back, you know, the Lindbergh slogan. And, you know, and, and I think just on a, on a just sort of moral level, right? I, mean, I think he would have found all that important. Now, I think the options go from on the worst end of what I can imagine I can imagine him being like a really annoying kind of resistance lib uh, or maybe even veering into sort of uh, Lincoln Project territory, right? That's the grimmest thing. You know, that's the darkest timeline. I, for, I can for, see that. I can see that. 
for Hitchens Evolution. The best one, at least when I think about 2016, I think, well, okay, what would he have said about the Democratic primary? And <laughs> you want Hitchens at the Bernie Bro, don't you? <laughs> I do want Hitchens at the Bernie Bro. I don't think it's impossible, right? Like I've got a case here. <laughs> that, uh, that like if you um i mean obviously he he virulently hated the clintons he'd written a book about that a very good book called no one left to lie to uh, at the at the end of the 90s title tells you everything right but like and, and in that book actually you know usually hitchens most of hitchens work right i mean really you know he's, he's much more focused on foreign policy but this is the uh, that's probably the book where he's like the most uh kind of outraged about uh domestic policy stuff he uh, he talks about the sort of Dickensian horrors of 1990s welfare reform. He, uh, he was very passionate about the death penalty. He talks about Bill Clinton uh, when he was governor of Arkansas running for president, actually flying back to Arkansas to personally oversee the uh, execution of, of a mentally disabled black man, uh, Billy Ray Rector, uh, in order to score tough on crime points, right? Like, uh, and he talks about healthcare. He goes after like Hillary Care for the right reasons, right? For, for like, he explains the difference between that and what would later, I mean, this branding didn't exist you know, when he wrote the book, but would later be called Medicare for All. So all of that actually running against Hillary Clinton on the basis of all of these issues that Hitchens writes about in the book. But the biggest thing that makes me think that there is at least one uh, timeline where, uh, where, where Hitchens becomes a Bernie bro is that is there was this debate, right? There's this Democratic debate in 2016. Where Hillary Clinton, you know, kept talking about how you know Henry Kissinger was this great friend and advisor, and you know, and uh, to like burnish her like you know foreign policy seriousness. And I'm not going to try to do Bernie, uh, you know, but like you know Bernie is like you know no, okay, I'll, I'll do it a little bit. It's going to be really bad. <laughs> uh, so you know, I, I'm happy to say Henry Kissinger is not my friend, right? Uh, and uh, and I I can't imagine Hitchens not at least having a warm that wasn't terrible. Yeah, yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't great. Uh, definitely, but, I've definitely heard worse. Uh, but uh, I, I have a hard time imagining Hitchens not at least like writing a column being like, yeah, good for Bernie, right? You know, there's a, there's a, above all else, I cannot imagine a version of, of Christopher Hitchens that didn't like violently hate Henry Kissinger. Sure. Yeah. With a good and, reason. And, and maybe the 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 other consistency would be that I think in every possible alternate timeline, right, we're going to end up with Christopher Hitchens, the still an atheist, right? <laughs> no question, uh, no yeah. question whatsoever about that. I've got this image now of uh, you know the iconic picture of Bernie in the chair with his arms crossed. I want to Photoshop Christopher and just sit next to him, just the two of them. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that would be a great image. Also, also um, with the mittens from that Vermont. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. They're sharing the same mittens. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. Maybe to return to his presence in the debate space, right? Do you think he was fair in his anti-religious polemics? Mm-hmm. What's your take on that? I would say it's not so much that he was necessarily unfair. I mean, I think the stuff he was wrong about. But like, I think it's more that he was more intellectually at home in some parts of the subject than, than he was in others. In other words, mm-hmm. I think that what he was worst at was the actual sort of arguing about the existence of God in God is not great. I think he does an okay job at it, right? Because maybe it's a different context, right? He's writing the book, you know, not like coming up with something to say in the moment. But I think in some of the debates, he's not great on that, just because I think there's a certain kind of like philosophical argument that uh, is just not where he lived. 
He doesn't really know the ins and outs mm. of, of the literature about that. He has a certain amount of impatience about it. You know, what I find much more compelling is the humanistic moral critique of, uh, well, he would say religion, I think if we're going to be more accurate, like Christianity and a few similar religions, right? You know, that, they, uh, that, that that's really what he's talking about. I think. I mean, he's got like a chapter in his book where he sort of does this very unconvincing drive-by attempt to like extend it to like Buddhism and Hinduism and all that stuff. But it's like, mm. come on, how much do you even know about that stuff? Right? <laughs> right. You know, like, yeah. you know um, really that's what he's, they, that's what he's like doing. You know, I mean, in fact, it's funny. He has a line that he uses in a couple of places where um, he calls himself a Protestant atheist, meaning that like uh, that's the religion that he first rejected and that sort of still sort of colors how he, you know, thinks about it. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, I think that the humanistic moral critique of that kind of Judeo-Christian worldview is where he's strongest, that the uh, sort of saying like, okay, are religion and morality connected in the way that believers often present them as being? Uh, is this view of the world, uh, would it be a good thing if mm-hmm. there, there is this sort of all-powerful dude who reads, you, who reads your thoughts and punishes you if you have bad ones, right? And it's like, yeah. I, think, I think on some of those subjects, I think he has things to say that I still find pretty compelling. I think that he's definitely weaker on some of the philosophical issues. And I think maybe this gets at what you're asking about, about fairness. He has a, even though one of the subjects that he's really strong in is the sort of historical and literary arguments that he'll bring in, right? There's a debate that he and Stephen Fry did with a, a Catholic archbishop and a Tory MP about the Catholic Church. And it's great because Hitchens could just spend a ton of the time eloquently railing off all the horrible shit that the Catholic Church has done over the centuries. It's like not like it's a shortage of material. But you can ask the fairness question there, right? Because it's like, well, to the extent that you're making this big claim, I mean, the subtitle of this book, right? How religion poisons everything, right? You know, it's like, well, well, does it though, right? I mean, like, that seems kind of simplistic, right? I mean, sure, religion is bound up in all kinds of horrible things that have happened, but I mean, what's even the claim here, right? Is the claim that religion per se only has negative effects, uh, which sometimes he seems to slip into. And I think that's like, indefensible i think that that's like clearly not true right like i don't think there's a case you could make for that i think i am just as convinced of the non-existence of god as christopher hitchens was but clearly religion has led to some good things happening uh in the sense in which it's led to a bunch of bad things right it's also led to some good things right i mean there's no denying that but then it gets hard because then you say okay well sometimes he seems to be saying that and he says things that i think could veer into some goofy territory sometimes like um like there's a part of the book where he tries to get out of having to admit that Martin Luther King's religious faith played some sort of role in inspiring him, you know, to, to do what he does. It's like, come on. Let's, yeah. You know. Yeah. And, and I think that um, to the extent that he's less interested in engaging in discussions about the existence of God, he's just like, that's less important than like, let's talk about if this is even a fucking good idea. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I do appreciate that sort of bracketing of the this sort of metaphysical question for the ethical one. And I think he was really driven by this ethical sense. You know, I'm, listen, I'm not a guy who thinks that morality is dependent in any, in any way by, you know, assenting to this or that proposition about sure. God or whatever. But I just think it's interesting to, to note that aspect of Hitchens. And, um, and there's a sense in which I think he protests too much. which isn't to take away from take away at all from like the merit of his arguments at all just to show possibly the uh i don't know like the the relative uselessness or or irrelevance of the terms atheism and theism Mm. and that these are sort of 
uh, ultimately unstable categories when when you get beyond the sort of facile question of existence or non-existence. I don't, and I know, I know you're you're an atheist. I'd, I'd love to hear uh, your own personal take on on that sort of thing. Okay, I mean, tell me if any of this gets at what you're asking, but I mean, I think that. I mean, I guess I'd separate out a couple things, right? There's this mm-hmm. sort of like philosophical question, right? Is there a God, right? That the, the sort of like really straightforward question. Um, and then there's a question about like sort of how you feel about religion where, um, where Hitchens, I think, often goes beyond you know, just saying there's not a God or, or even saying like, you know, religious believers don't have a corner on morality and even conceptually there isn't the kind of connection between those two subjects you know that uh, many believers assert that there is right that Mm -hmm. you know like like those are both he goes beyond those to this kind of strident anti-theism where it's like um it's not just that religious believers or people who have this view that's incorrect it's it's like morally urgent to to get people to to not think this or like it's it's a uh you know it's this politically important thing to combat the influence of uh of religion and i i am very unsold on hitchensian anti-theism for a couple reasons one is you know marx's kind of reason which is that like i think that oftentimes it's just based on this this view of of history that i, I just think isn't right it's like okay did religion cause all these bad things to happen right or are there like material forces in the world that cause those bad things to happen and like certain kinds of of religious ideas or you know stories were sort of like culturally around to you know to be used as a convenient justification for them right so it's like if if, uh if you think about like north ireland is a really great example yeah exactly right like you know, North Ireland, it's Catholics versus Protestants. But is it though? Is that really at the root of this? In totally. in no way. In no way. Absolutely not. Yeah. No, I think that's a great example. Yeah. I mean, I think um, you know, I, I think post 9-11 Hitchens in particular has, I think, a habit of sort of lazily blaming bad stuff in the Middle East on, you know, what do you call like the parties of God or whatever. It's like, yeah, but come on, you sort of know better than that, right? I mean, that that's not <laughs> that's not really why, right? I mean, that's uh there's a lot, there's a lot else going on there. And so, so that's like one reason. Then the other reason, which is related, is like, I think that sometimes Hitchens in his anti-religious zeal kind of slips into thinking, into talking almost as if there is like a real version of Christianity or Islam or whatever, and it's the bad one. Yep. Right? You know, <laughs> like, it's like, no, there is no, these are incredibly broad cultural traditions that are incredibly yeah. malleable. And they could be used for all sorts of different things. And people are going to use that sort of uh, conceptual language, symbolism, you know, like stories, all of that stuff for like diametrically opposed purposes. And you should expect that, right? As a yeah. matter of course, it's, it's all equally real or unreal. And, and I ultimately, like maybe one of my biggest objections to, to new atheism is just sort of on a simple minded level. I just think like it just teaches people to prioritize the wrong things and deciding how they feel about people. Like, who do I like better? Do I like the Christian left better? Or do I like the kind of atheists who want to spread, you know, secular liberalism to, to Iran through... Uh, at the tip through, of a spear. Yeah. At the tip <laughs> of a spear, or who, who maybe are like atheist libertarians who are, you know, spending their, their lives working towards the kind of society where, you know, mm-hmm. 
uh, people would be selling their organs for cryptocurrency to, to afford rent, right? You know, it's like this, like, no, I'll, I'll take Cordell West or uh, Martin Luther King or Leonardo Boff, something like that. <laughs> totally, right. You know, or to pick a fourth example at random of a progressive Christian, my wife, Jennifer Burgess, right? You know, it's like, the, like, like, like any of those people, right? You know, I like and significantly it, better. And you mentioned earlier that he called himself a Protestant atheist. And I think yeah. that's really relevant on this point, right? Yeah. Because I think there is something really not even just Christian, but specifically Protestant about the way he conceptualizes religion, right? Mm-hmm. And so he has this very, I think, sort of idealistic conception of religion where it's a, it's about the ideas that you hold. Mm-hmm. And what, I, uh, what for me is always missing from the new atheist debate is none of this is a lived reality. Like n- neither them nor their opponents. There's no discussion of, of ritual theory or the existential dimensions of religiosity. That's all gone. It's just there are ideas and you either assent to those ideas or you dissent from them. And that's so Protestant. <laughs> yeah, right. Salvation by faith alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. To, to that point, I don't know if he, if he ever identified, you know, self-identified with that uh, general movement or not, but he was... Uh, oftentimes referred to as one of the four horsemen, right, of the uh, the new atheist movement, which is an affront to apocalypticism. But okay, <laughs> and really dorky. Yeah, yeah really. right. It's 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 like look. I mean, to pick the um, to pick, I think by far the least problematic horseman, Daniel Dennett. Yeah, okay. You know, he's like kind of an interesting writer, but it's like it's, it's that's not a very exciting apocalypse. <laughs> no, no, it, yeah, and I, I just don't think that they did. Uh, as someone who doesn't necessarily identify always as an atheist, uh, I don't think they did atheism any any big favors, you know, for for a lot of the reasons that we're talking about. And it wasn't that sort of robust 19th century sort of like if I'm going to go in for atheism, I'm going to go in for peak atheism, you know, like. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, look for sure. I mean, like if if the question is like. Who do I like better, Ben Harris or Bertram Russell? Right, that's not a hard question. For yeah, me. <laughs> um, I think if you're going to give them their due, mm-hmm. which I'm much more inclined to do for some of them than others, right? But like, if you are, I think that probably having some version of advocacy for secularism be be that prominent in the culture at the time that it was. I think it was probably like good for some people who came out of like evangelical households maybe right you know and, and, yeah. Um, yeah. and you're maybe struggling with religious doubts and you know and you and you maybe also wonder if like having religious doubts makes you a bad person and all that stuff right that, that i think that that this probably was like a good thing yeah they were providing spiritual guidance in a way yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, I think I think it probably did provide some uh, some positive spiritual guidance. But I, uh, but I think on a sort of broader level, is this culturally and politically good to have this sort of very um, one note version of advocacy of atheism, where there isn't really even a very clear distinction being made between atheism per se and this like kind of political atheism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and metaphysically, like a sort of eliminativism. I feel like a lot yeah. of it bo- does boil down to that on that side of things. Oh, yeah, totally. Right. I mean, then, so, so, yeah, they have the worst of new atheism sort of embodies both a lot of the like bad stuff that became like whatever, like the intellectual dark web or whatever stupid yeah. shit like yeah. that. Right. And like also, Sam Harris is literally in that crew. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sam Harris is, is literally in both. Right. You know, he's a, he's a horseman and uh, he's an IDW <laughs> guy. And that sort of makes sense on that level. 
Uh, but so it like it embodies like some of what's bad about that, but it also embodies some of what's wrong about like a certain kind of very recognizable super smug liberalism that's like the sort of like, well, we believe oh, yeah. in science. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. In this yeah. house we believe. Yeah. <laughs> Get that little sign with all the colors. Um the the one thing I want to throw in maybe here as we're as we're drawing things to a close a bit, um is there's this one interview that I, I find really, really fascinating when and you'll probably quickly pick up on which one I, I want to talk about when it comes to this question of atheism. It's from some documentary or something, and it's Christopher Hitchens sitting in the back of a car uh, and he's recounting an interaction he had with with Dawkins. And I think it was in a Q&A or something like that. And so he was asked by somebody if if there was one religious person left in the world, like you've converted everyone else or, you know, he actually pushes back on that that language. You've converted all of them. But one, would you convert that last um religious person and he he says no and he says no and i think it's really interesting too because he says he says no and you might think that it's because then there would be no one else to argue with and it is that partially uh and he says but i don't know why but i wouldn't do it and i think that actually is for me i think is one of the most interesting you know minute and a half of things he said because there's this there's a recognition that there's a a richness to sort of diversity of theological mm-hmm. thought that i think often new atheism fails to recognize and in that in that little moment you can see that he's he gets it that that something would be lost if the religious impulse was gone. And I find that really fascinating. And it's something where, you know, somebody like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, I don't think, I don't think they have the the sort of like kind of liberal arts kind of cultural insight to be able to have seen that the way he did. No, I think that's I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that uh yeah, I mean I I, I assume Dawkins or Harris would have said yes, of course, right? You know, that's that's <laughs> uh let's get rid of you know patient zero before they can uh, infect anybody else. Uh yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that um, it does tell you a lot about Hitchens and maybe a little bit of why he's just more interested than any of these other guys, right? I mean, like, I, I you know, he's somebody I continue to find interesting, right? I mean, like, who I think some of his books are still really worth reading, or really almost all of them are worth reading, although not all for the same reason, you know, I think that the... Um, if I'm just like kind of like putzing around like the kitchen, like washing dishes, making dinner or whatever, like watching like some Hitchens debate or something on YouTube has some appeal for me in a way that Matt, if I'm if I'm uh, if I'm watching Sam Harris on, on YouTube, I'm I'm doing it because I promised Jack that I'd write something by <laughs> next morning and I have to. Well, yeah, no, it's to that point. I would nine times out of ten, I would choose watching Chris Hitchens give his his worst takes on 9/11 and the rest than Jordan Peterson giving his like sad, angry, structuralist apologetics for fucking whatever dumb shit he's like into that week. You're better. You're, you're a better polemicist than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But I I do, I I certainly agree with that. Right. I mean, like, Oh, good. Okay. I mean, I think the two reasons that I would watch, okay. Harris, I think if I were watching him, like I think a hundred out of a hundred times, that would be for work. Right. Like that would, that would just, you know, that, that would not be, something I'm just kind of, I'm just doing for pleasure, right? I mean, that would be like, this is some kind of like, we're going to do, you know, we want to like show a clip of this on the show so we could respond to this. Or like I said, I'd write something. So like, I've got to like get it to make sure I'm, I'm represented and right or whatever. But it, that would be a uh, obligation, right? You know, the, yeah. uh, um, Peterson, it would either be that 
or it would just be kind of craning into car crash fascination that it's like, oh, somebody told me that like, you know, oh, there's this new interview where Jordan Peterson, you know, mm-hmm. starts, uh, you know, starts talking about, uh, you know, plus size models and bursts into tears or something. It's like, okay, I got to watch that. Um, so uh, I, we don't want to take up any more of your time. Um, thank you so much. So for uh, our audience, if they are looking for your thoughts, could you um, uh, give them the, the title and all that for your book? Sure. So uh, the book is Christopher Hitchens, what he uh, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters. Uh, and you can get that in the usual places that you get books. But to the extent that I could direct people to get it in a specific place, it would be Red Emma's. Uh, so Emma, like the name. Uh, so RedEmmas.org. That's a worker-owned bookstore in Baltimore that uh, you can order books from online. And yeah, uh, also write for Jacobin. People can, uh, can, can check me out there. And on Monday and Thursday nights uh, at eight o'clock, that's in uh, God's time zone, Eastern Standard, um, uh, you, can, uh, you can see, give them an argument on YouTube. I'm laughing because it's true. <laughs> and, and, and if they do want to see you dunk on Peterson, you contributed to uh, Myth and Mayhem, a book on Jordan Peterson as well, correct? Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, I wrote a chapter of a book uh, also from Zero Books called Myth and Mayhem, a Leftist Critique of Jordan Peterson, which also includes contributions from Marion Trejo, Conrad Hamilton, and uh, my good friend Matt McManus, and uh, as well as an introduction by uh, Slavoj Žižek. Ooh. <laughs> if, if anybody's just listened to this they they, they can't did you see just what I did. did you just transform into slow they, 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 <laughs> they can't see what i just did i i, I was a, that was a a loving tribute to his many mannerisms uh the, uh, the, the rubbing his nose they put his head in his hair all, all that stuff um i have this is uh, good we, we i think we've come full, full circle for full circle because we got we got a uh, bernie impression and we got a Zizek impression <laughs> that's right and i mostly resisted the uh temptation to try to do hitchens in this interview uh, so uh, there, there you go um yeah no it's, it's okay i i if, if there's one guy in the world who can who can take a little bit of uh affectionate uh oh yeah joshing uh that would be that would be him i i, I saw him last time i uh spoke to him for an extended period of time was was mm-hmm. at the, uh, the the hay festival in the uk there was like a point where i was sitting in the green room between events and uh and uh he's like walking through and he and he gives me both middle fingers at the same time you know <laughs> says, says hey fuck you up the ass and, is, that what, uh, is that what he said no that that is what he said that's a verbatim quote oh that's fantastic that's and fantastic and then he uh, he turns to the people he's with. He's like, "It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's my it's okay. Friend. He likes it. He likes you it. <laughs> ben is my friend. I must greet my friends in this manner." So, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, so you know, I, I I don't feel I don't I don't, I don't no, feel. He's a he's, he's a very lovable trash panda for sure. <laughs> I we were we were hoping that we've talked about wanting to get him on to talk about um, his book on shelling. Which I know is oh, yeah. kind of older now, but like we've um, we're interested no, in, sh- in shelling and I'll, I'll, I'll bet he would do it because he's like because I think that my sense is that like if somebody's like invited him on their show and to do like his ten thousandth interview about like no we don't want him for that we know. want him to talk about like something specific we got to like you know set the guardrails up yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <that's>, possible <laughs> well 
I mean, good luck with that. But yeah, there's a, uh, but like, but I, I do think that like, I do think if you told him that you didn't want to have him on to like talk about like, you know, what he thinks about like five news stories that have just happened did some pop culture shit and like what he means by communism. But like, you know, you want to have him on to talk about Shelley. I think he'd be a lot more interested in that. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, do you know how we might get, get in touch with him? Uh, I mean, I could. I mean, if you want an email address, I can certainly, I can certainly give you that. You know, yeah, so, that'd, yeah that'd be cool. Sure. Cool, I appreciate it. Yep. Yeah, this was great. Really appreciate your yeah, time. This fun. was a fun, dis- fun discussion. We got some some bonus uh, content. I I love impressions. <laughs> um, and um, let's let's do it again sometime on an, on another topic. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great one. Bye. Thanks again to Ben. Thank you for listening. I feel like there was something else I had, but I can't remember. Uh, So that's it. See you next time.